Well, hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on for Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. Thank you for sitting tight right where you are while I took a little time off, because boy, are there things to talk about. Today, the Supreme Court is debating the future of the ban on bump stocks, but it's not a Second Amendment debate. It's actually something worse. I'll explain. Plus, Wendy's is thinking about changing the prices of their products based on the time of day and how busy it is. Now they're trying to walk that back. I think it's a distinction without a difference. Plus, there's a video game I've fallen in love with. And if you don't love gaming, I understand. But if you care about democracy, it's a game I think you should know about too. Go to nightlightjoshua.com for all my social media links, for some merch, and to put a few bucks in the tip jar. Well, hi, y'all. How you doing? I hope you had a nice break. Oh, well, I had a nice break. I hope you had a, a nice few days without me last week, I guess. That was my break. I appreciate you coming back and sticking around wherever you are on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, or X. Appreciate you being here. Remember, if you want to be part of the online chat, you can go to Facebook, Twitch, or YouTube. I am at Nightlight Joshua on YouTube. Good to see everybody, including my longtime frequent flyers. Hello, Nora, who writes, looking forward to getting back together again. Hope you had a restful break, Joshua. Kind of. I kind of had a restful break. It wasn't bad. We went to Palm Springs for the weekend, which is a really easy, really gorgeous four-hour drive from Las Vegas. It's all highways. It's one of the most beautiful, beautiful drives in the country and an easy trip to take. It's like two different drives, basically. One Vista on your way out and another one on the way back, and it was just so nice. I took pictures. I should have I should have uh, prepped pictures to show you. I'll, I'll do that a little bit later on, or maybe I'll just crank them out really quickly. But it was a very nice trip, uh, very thoughtful. I did a lot of thinking while I was away, and we'll talk a bit more a little later about some of the things that I was thinking about, but I'll share that with you. Solange the first, hello Solange, says, welcome back, Joshua, and I love Palm Springs. Yes, Palm Springs is a great trip. First time I went, I went with a, an ex who was taking me to Palm Springs for the very first time, and I said, what are we gonna do while we're there? And he said, nothing. I was like, what? I said, what are, what are our plans? He said, there are none. And then had this look on his face like a, <laughs> the young man who needs to know everything that's going on at all times is going to be without direction. It is my most diabolical plan to date. And he just watched me as I kind of got there and saw the city kind of begin to power down. Because a lot of Palm Springs, like, they roll up the sidewalk in parts of town after like 8 p.m., maybe 9 on a wild night. And I just kind of was there in a neighborhood that that you know, had very few streetlights because the neighbors like it, you know, quiet and dark in their nice little mid-century modern homes that they paid good money for. And before long, I was like, oh, this is perfect. And it was wonderful. It was an object lesson in the need to stop and in the need, I think we sometimes will confuse stagnation for stillness. And one of the real challenges I have with the way we live today is that we don't seem to have as much capacity to be still, to just stop moving, not to stop working, not to stop striving or stop doing or stop being, but to just pause and take stock and realize just how exhausted we really are. And I think that that is one of the things that I get a lot of out of being in Palm Springs is that you kind of have to, the only thing you really have to plan for is meals. That's the big thing. Because a lot of restaurants are not open late, except for a handful of places and like Denny's and IHOP that are 24 hours. 
and then you know like del taco you know which we don't do del taco but other than that there's kind of not a lot of options and in that regard it's actually kind of nice to not be in a city that's 24 hours i lived in 24 hour cities i live in a 20 let's say a 20 hour city vegas is sort of a 20 hour city but being in a place where you just have to sit your ass down and and stay home after a certain hour is therapeutic. Try it for 90 days. I think you'll like it. Hello, Philip. Good to see you. Hello. Hi, Mom. I see you're on. Hello, Mom, who joined the chat over on YouTube. Hello, Joseph. Happy Wednesday to you as well. Holly, don't feel bad. Uh, see, Holly writes, hey, fam, your girl is late. Holly, you're not late. We're just chatting. We're just chatting. That's... This is how we make room for the stragglers like yourself to finally get to class on time. But welcome. It's good to see you again, Holly. Good to see all of you. Speaking of which, this is one of the, the things that I've been thinking about in terms of the show. And I'll talk more about the future of the show a little bit later on. There's going to be a show, first of all. But I've been thinking about a lot of things regarding this, including the timing of it. Some of you saw that we experimented with a nighttime program. I'll talk more about that a little bit later on. I do want to get down to what we're going to discuss today or what I'd like to discuss with you today. And again, for those of you who are watching over on X, please feel free to jump over to YouTube. I'm at Nightlight Joshua. You cannot join the chat from X, unfortunately, because of the software that I'm using, but you can join on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. So if you want to follow me any of those sites, you can go to nightlightjoshua.com and you can check out all the links there. One of the things that I am evolving with this program is being a little bit less married to breaking news. I know that many of you know me from my work on NPR or MSNBC, but you've already got sources for breaking news. And unless I have something particularly intelligent to say, I really don't feel the need to kind of dig into everything. I think if you focus, air quotes, focus on everything, you're really focused on nothing. And I built a career chasing breaking news. And now I get to build this new cha chapter of my career at a time when even the industry doesn't know what the hell it wants to be. So why should I be following that lead? They're dematerializing as we speak. Today, you may have heard, I will just mention so that you know that I'm aware of it. And if you want to bring it up in the chat, feel free. But you may have heard a couple of the big stories from the last hour, at least, at least as of the time we're streaming this. Senator Mitch McConnell, Repub longtime Republican from Kentucky, has announced today that he will step down as Senate Minority Leader this November. He's not leaving the Senate. His term runs through 2026, but he's basically preparing to stand down from the Senate. He's not quitting. There have been a number of members of Congress who have announced that they are leaving. Obviously, we heard we had the former House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, who got booted as House Speaker and replaced with Senator Mike Johnson of Louisiana, and Kevin McCarthy just kind of faded in, into the background and rode off into the sunset. But there is also a number of members who are stepping down in a climate that a lot of members of Congress say is just kind of poisonous and just not a workplace they want to be in. We'll talk more about that another time, but that is also out there today. He spoke on the floor of the Senate, rather more emotional than we usually hear Senator um, McConnell ever. He keeps his feelings very kind of guarded, but today he was a little bit more moved and talked about just the thrill that he gets when he walks into Congress, even to this day. And I will say it is a remarkable thing to be in those buildings, to be near them even, to see them and have them not just be like a backdrop on a newscast is a big deal. And he's been there since 1984, I believe, was when he won his first election. So 
That is in motion today. Also, you had the Michigan primaries that were yesterday. Can you guess who won? Joe Biden took Michigan very easily. Donald Trump took Michigan very easily. Nikki Haley did not do very well, as expected, but she says she's not quitting. She says she's not going to be done. She's going through at least Super Tuesday, which is next Tuesday, March 5th. And we'll talk more about Super Tuesday on Friday. She says she's not giving that up. Joe Biden obviously is staying in the race. Dean Phillips, congressman from Minnesota, who's tried to kind of run against him, got very few votes. However, a lot of voters also chose uncommitted as a kind of a protest vote against Joe Biden, particularly in parts of Michigan, that, and especially the Detroit area, that have very large Arab and Arab-American populations. Those voters, particularly in the Dearborn, Michigan area, where about half of the residents are of Arab descent, 75% of them, at least at one point in the night, was about 75% that voted uncommitted as a protest vote against Joe Biden to say, we're not just going to choose you because you're the Democrat we're used to. We actually expect something more for our money, and we are expecting more from you right now in terms of policy on Israel. President Biden had said this week that he believed that some kind of a ceasefire could be arranged in time for Ramadan, which would be coming around very, very soon. But both Israel and Hamas poured cold water on that, and they're like, we, we, don't, we don't see that. So who knows what the president's going to do in that regard? Also, by the way, he went to Walter Reed Army Medical Center today for his annual physical, so it'll be interesting to see those results once they come out. So that's in the background today. And also, we had talked on this show about the death penalty, lethal injection. Idaho, we mentioned that Idaho was moving forward with lethal injection, even though the supply of those drugs is scant. Well, today is the execution of a man named Thomas Creech, who had been on Idaho's death row for about 40 some odd years. He was convicted of murder back in, the, in 74, automatically sentenced to the death penalty. But in 1976, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that that was unconstitutional. So it was commuted to life in prison. Then he committed another murder in prison. And then they sentenced him to the death penalty again. Thomas Creech has, by many accounts, reformed. Even some of the prison staff wrote letters in his defense to try to get him clemency. The warden of the prison, when he was incarcerated, wrote a letter on his behalf. Idaho's governor says, this is justice long delayed, and today was the day, and they went ahead with it. The US Supreme Court did not agree to hear his plea for clemency, and so the execution is scheduled today. But the state of Idaho has not said where they got their lethal injection drugs from. That is the whole issue behind this. That was why we were looking at Alabama, who was basically going to use you know, asphyxiation, like nitrogen, to suck the oxygen out of a room, and cause the condemned inmate to be put to death. Idaho's doing it by lethal injection, but they haven't said where they got the drugs from. And the companies that make the drugs that are used in lethal injection have stopped selling them to states because that's not why they made those drugs. So it's controversial all the way around. I did see one account that showed about eight or so people who were outside of the correctional facility in Idaho where Thomas Creech was on death row, but I haven't yet checked to see if the lethal injection was, was completed. I presume that it was by now. So those are a few other stories that are kind of in the background that have been making news today. 
Don't want to dig into them any deeper than that, but just a few things that were kind of on my mind. As I was thinking about the Mitch McConnell story, I saw the story break, and then I saw Mitch McConnell speaking on the floor of the Senate, and I thought, oh crap, this is just happening. I need to, I need to figure out what to do with this. I need to scramble to do this. And then something in my brain said, do you have to or do you want to? And I thought, what? <laughs> Am I allowed to make that decision? And I said, yeah, of course you can. It's your, it's your, it's your show. It's your program. Do you have to scramble or do you want to? And I thought, no, I don't really want to. I don't know if I have anything special to say about it. And then I thought to myself, then why are you scrambling? What's the scramble? It was like the clouds parted and uh, the glory of the Lord shone roundabout. I was like, oh my God, I don't have to do this story if I don't want to. So a lot more of what I intend to do are the things that I actually feel I have something to say about or that I have something to add or that I feel strongly about. That's why today we're talking about a variety of things that may not necessarily be the top story of the day because we all get alerts on our phones. And you are all very bright people. You've made that abundantly clear through your emails and your chat comments and everything you've contributed to the show. You're not dumb people. You know what's going on. And some of you will inform me of a story that's broken. And that's awesome. So for me to act like I'm your primary news source, what the hell? Like, I'm, I'm not. And I don't really need to be. There's no point in me doing that. But if you have something you want to bring up, bring it. And we do have, you know, for my premium members, we do an AMA and ask me anything every month. So if that's a venue where you want to share something like, hey, I wanted to hear your opinion on this, say so. You can also just message me. You can go to nightlightjoshua.com. You can contact me through there and just say, hey, I would love, love for you to talk about this. I welcome ideas. And we'll do more of that. I also have a taped interview coming up that I'll tell you a little bit more about as we get deeper into the show. But for now, I want to get into one of the stories that has gotten a lot of my attention or that I think is, is kind of fascinating. And I would love to know what you think about this. Again, not a top story of the day, but one of those quality of life things that I think reflects something about the way we live and especially concerns me because of the quality of life issues that many of us are facing right now. One of the, one of the really interesting things that I have noted in my travels around the country, and you've certainly seen it too, everyone's seen this, is the frequency of grocery stores to fast food chains in a particular place there is a clear direct correlation between the affluence of an area and the presence of full-size freestanding grocery stores, or in big cities, maybe they're not freestanding, but full-size grocery stores, compared to corner shops, convenience stores, and especially fast food chains that people rely on for sustenance. So it really caught my eye and I think it caught a lot of people's eyes when they heard about something that Wendy's is planning. Have you heard about this? The company put out a statement today pushing back on some of the initial reports of what they were supposedly going to start doing at a number of Wendy's locations. Essentially, the company made comments a few days ago 
saying that they were going to begin, and this was from the CEO of Wendy's, Kirk Tanner, who said that Wendy's was going to begin testing dynamic pricing at Wendy's restaurants. What they had said earlier this month was that starting possibly next year, Wendy's would begin testing dynamic pricing as well as using AI to shift the menu to suggest items and to alter the prices of products through the day, usually depending on demand. If you've ever ridden Lyft or Uber, you've encountered this, where at certain times of day, it's way more expensive to ride Lyft or Uber. Those of us who have lived in the biggest big cities, New York, LA, Chicago, DC, and so on, have felt this a lot. Because in some places, it makes a huge difference, and in other places, it will immediately drive you to the subway, right? In New York, I had to learn, like, when to just take the train and when to take a car and how to figure it all out. Well, and also airfares, right? That's, that's, that's probably our most common form of dynamic pricing that everyone's used to, that prices for airline tickets are just more expensive to certain places at certain times of the year. You can tell, you know, in LA, it, you know, my, my partner was trying to book a trip to LA a few weeks ago and saw that the tickets were way more expensive, that hotel rooms were way more expensive on this particular weekend. He's like, what the hell, what happened with the prices? And I thought about it and I was like, Grammys, the Grammy Awards are this weekend. That's why they're more expensive. Things like that. Imagine it at Wendy's. You're pulling through and you think you know what you're gonna pay and then all of a sudden it's like, nope, you're gonna pay something else. I'm not sure I like that. But Wendy's pushed back on this in a statement saying that it was not going to do that. It said that what it was actually going to do is to use those digital menu boards to offer discounts to customers more easily, particularly in slower times of day. The statement reads in part, quote, we said these menu boards would give us more flexibility to change the display of featured items. This was misconstrued in some media reports as an intent to raise prices when demand is highest. We have no plans to do that, unquote. That's according to part of the statement. Now, obviously that drew a lot of kickback and a lot of pushback. One of the people who pushed really hard back on this was Senator Elizabeth Warren. She posted on X just this morning, quote, at Wendy's is planning to try out, quote, surge pricing. That means you could pay more for your lunch, even if the cost to Wendy's stays exactly the same. It's price gouging, plain and simple, and American families have had enough, unquote. That's what Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, posted on X today. I still keep trying to say tweeted. It, it's, it's, it's basically a tweet. It's just a tweet with Elon Musk's residue on it. But that's what Elizabeth Warren posted today, is that this is, what, this, is, this is what's going on. And you've also had President Biden, who around the time of the Super Bowl, announced that the administration was trying to take steps to prevent what's called shrinkflation, where you pay more money and get less products. You know, there's let fewer, there's less cereal in the box, there's less soda in the bottle, and yet the cost keeps going up, that they are keen to do something about this. There was also, you know, in the, well, the Reuters write-up that I see, a restaurant conference going on in the Dallas area where a number of executives said that that would probably scare a number of consumers off. They spoke to one gentleman named Victor Fernandez, who is an analyst at Black Box Intelligence, who he, it's a, a 
corporate analytics firm, and he deals with restaurants. And he said, I don't see it taking off anytime soon. And I agree with that. And I also, I think worse than this, think that it's a distinction without a difference to an extent. Saying, oh, well, we're going to lower the prices at off-peak times. We're going to offer you discounts. Well, the discount is only a discount because the price will go back up. If you lower the price at certain times of day, guess what you're going to do at other times of day? You're going to raise the price. It's, it's ridiculous. Instead of focusing on the prices going up and then back down to normal, they're focusing on the prices occasionally, potentially when they feel like it going down and then going back up. So then what's the price? If you're a person who relies on fast food for whatever reason, as a form of your regular sustenance, how are you, how are you budgeting for that? You're crossing your fingers that you're able to get the same food at a lower price. You probably have that baked into your routine based on when you work, based on when your kids go to school, based on when you might be caring for a relative, aging or otherwise, and you have that built into your life. And now you have to kind of schedule and hope that you've got a few extra pennies to spend at Wendy's, if that's a staple. Now, look, I, I understand how easy it is to say, well, they shouldn't be relying on Wendy's for their daily bread anyway. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> totally agreed. I wish it was that simple. If it was that simple, this probably wouldn't be such an issue, especially when you think about how much we spend on food. Wall Street Journal has had some pretty solid coverage, including last week, a week ago today, about how much money we're spending on food as a portion of our income. And the last time that we spent this much money as a percentage of our income on food was about 30 years ago. And I... I I love slash hate the way news stories are like, 30 years ago, so-and-so was in the White House. A bottle of milk cost 45 cents. But it's, it's, it's a decent, I guess, enough barometer. Because the last time, according to the journal, that we spent this much on food, George H.W. Bush was in the White House. C&C Music Factory was a thing. Terminator 2 Judgment Day was the hit at the theaters. That's how long ago this was. According to the journal... Last month, prices at restaurants and other eateries were up 5% from the year before. Grocery costs rose 1% from the year before, according to the Labor Department. And those costs are not coming down anytime soon. According to food and restaurant executives, they're still dealing with rising costs. And some ingredients like cocoa are getting more expensive. If you want to fall into a somewhat dispiriting online rabbit hole, Go look up the cost of chocolate and coffee. Those two costs are rising rather significantly. And when you think about the entire chain of things that has to happen to make coffee or to make chocolate, it's dizzying. Just the array of hands that have to touch it in order for it to get to you and me. Don't waste coffee. <laughs> and don't waste chocolate. Two ingredients that you should never, ever waste because they don't just come as they are. They have to be processed and processed and processed and processed and processed. Two things you never waste, coffee or chocolate. Back to the journal article. Back in 91, we spent about 11.4% of our disposable personal income on food. That's according to USDA data. 
We were still dealing with inflation from the 70s during that, all the way into 91. And then three decades after that, we're right back. As of 2022, it was 11.3%. That's the most recent USDA data available. Another factor, according to the journal, a lot of us say we're going out less frequently. Or if we go out to eat, we skip appetizers. Maybe we buy store brands, the generics at supermarkets, rather than the name brands. We do a lot more work on the apps and in the newspapers, clipping coupons and looking for deals. And that costs food makers and restaurant chains money. Other commodities where the price is going up, a lot of which are at use at Wendy's and other fast food chains, corn, wheat, coffee beans, chicken have gotten cheaper, but prices for sugar, beef, and French fries keep going up. Now, to be clear, they're not all going up because sugar is harder to grow or cattle are harder to tend or because French fries are harder to French. It's partly, I think, because demand is so significant. You know, I mean, sugar is used in a lot of different products, including some products that may not be the healthiest, but which lower income families have to rely on. French fries are a staple. Lots of people eat French fries. So some of this is just inflationary, but some of it's profit driven. And I think that's part of the issue here. And we already know that, and this is a piece from the conversation from one food researcher, that in lower income areas, fast food can actually crowd out healthier options for food to eat. This is a piece from Professor Catherine Keskey, who teaches at UC, excuse me, the University of California, Merced. Merced is in California's Central Valley. It's, you know, one of the breadbaskets of America. If you think about the state of California and you look at the coastline, Inland from the coastline is Interstate 5. It's the fast way to get up and down the state of California. Take you all the way up to the Canadian border, through Seattle, through Portland. Runs right through downtown Seattle, in fact. The I-5 corridor in central California with cities like Fresno, Modesto, and uh, Merced, and others, is huge agricultural land, which means it's very mixed income, including rather low income. And this is where she studies food insecurity. I bar. Food security is the term we use now to describe what we call hunger. We don't talk about whether people are going hungry. Hunger is an emotion. I'm hungry. When this show is over, I'm running into the kitchen. But there's food there. Food insecurity is the ability of a person to have a basic nutritious balanced diet without having to beg, borrow, or steal. That's basically it. That you have the food you need and you don't have to make unreasonable or embarrassing or illegal compromises to feed yourself and the people who are in your care. So that's food insecurity. And that's the irony of it, that a lot of people who are in California's Central Valley will rely more, according to this professor, on fast foods and prepare foods than the nutritious, healthy produce that they are growing and picking for us. It doesn't all stay in California. Most of it leaves California. So if you get fruits and vegetables in the winter, if you get almonds ever, if you get raisins, remember that the ad campaign for California raisins? That's where they come from. There are certain things that just come from the state of California. And that's why it makes it so much more you know, heartbreaking to see even contemplating that kind of a shift in the cost of fast food. One of the things that this researcher notes is a study that they did back in 2019, 2020. So just before and ending during COVID, 
where they went through and surveyed undergrads at UC Merced. So these are college students who are going to school in the Central Valley, many of whom presumably are from the Central Valley. 73% were first-generation college students. About 64% got Pell Grants. Those are federal grants for low-income students. More than 90% described themselves as non-white. And many of them were from farm worker families. So what's their relationship with food? A quarter of them said that at least once a week, they go all day without eating because they're too busy to eat. 20%, about a fifth, said that at least once a week, they cannot afford healthy or nutritious food. 20%. More than a third, 37%, say they don't have access to healthy food, even when they know about supplemental food resources like CalFresh. CalFresh is basically California's food stamp program, what we used to call food stamps. But beyond that, 80%, 80%, said they make their food decisions based on price, which, logically... 75% say they base it on convenience and access. So what's most convenient? Well, nearly 70 said they elect food for familiarity, comfort, or importance to culture, identity, or lifestyle. More than 60% said they eat at their favorite restaurant, often fast food, because it's comforting. So you take all of these different factors, and these are the aspirational young adults who come from largely farm worker families that are feeding you and me. And these kinds of restaurants like Wendy's are a staple for them in a very different way than they're staples for everybody else who doesn't live in the Central Valley, whose livelihood does not depend on picking the tomatoes and the, the, the raisins and the, the almonds and the, the lettuce and all the other crops that we rely on that we just get at the grocery store. This is the other side of that. And so when you are in that situation and when you're budgeting your education against your ability to eat every day, I mean, a quarter of them say they go all day without eating at least once a week because they're too busy. And then a fifth say it's because they can't find something healthier, nutritious to eat in California. Yeah, in California. So this whole idea that Wendy's would even contemplate surge pricing Yet another bit of uncertainty feels maniacally cruel. It just doesn't, it just doesn't wash. It just does not wash for me. And I worry about what that's going to mean more broadly. It, it just, I just, it, it's, it's, it just feels horrible. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it other than that. Like life is uncertain enough. We don't need another layer of uncertainty on top of this. It's, it's problematic. I hope that Wendy's rethinks this, or I hope that at least if they're going to change prices, they change them consistently. I get why this is so tempting, because now AI, another offshoot of the advent of AI, provides them significantly more granular data on what you and I are eating at any given time. Also, apps change everything. I have a McDonald's app on my phone. I have a Pizza Hut app on my phone. And so when I use these apps, more the Pizza Hut app than the McDonald's app, but we use them both. When I use these apps, there is enormous data that comes into these devices. When you pull into a McDonald's, you don't even have to log in on the app. There's a four digit code that pops up. And when you pull up, they say, welcome to McDonald's. Are you gonna be using the app today? Yes, I'm gonna use the app. What is your four digit code? 3894. Joshua? Yep, that's me. Okay, Joshua, what can I get for you? And they just know. 
How do they know? They have location data. They know which phone belongs to a Joshua in proximity to that McDonald's franchise. And when the number pops up, it matches the number to the location to my name and they know who I am. So I totally understand why these things are proliferating. And I don't even necessarily have a problem with the idea of surge pricing per se, as long as it's clear and consistent. And as long as I know what I'm getting for my money, if I could check before I went, that'd be one thing, fine. But don't just make it so dynamic that from hour to hour, it could shift. At least make it week to week, day to day at the worst. But life is uncertain enough, Wendy's. Like this is not, this is not what we signed up for at all. When Dave Thomas was doing the ads and, hi, I'm Dave Thomas, and I want everybody to enjoy my new Wendy's hamburger. They're square, unlike other Burger Chain's hamburgers, and full of fresh, juicy flavor. Like that homespun feel of Wendy's of like decent quality ingredients that are made differently is still why I think a lot of people go to Wendy's, especially people my age and older, who remember all of that marketing. And now it's like, we're gonna nickel and dime you based on like, when the sun goes down? That feels problematic to me. And it's even more problematic because I know I'm not the person who's gonna be hurt the worst by this. I know there are people who are gonna be hurt much more. And that sucks. That's not okay. I wanna pause for just a minute. I wanna to get to some of your comments in the chat. There's one other aspect of this whole fast food thing that I find fascinating politically about rising wages in fast food and one chain who's not going to have to pay them because of their relationships politically. I just noticed this today as I was Googling fast food. Are there other developments I'm missing? I just saw this and even though I don't live in California, you may be interested to know what's about to happen there. We'll get to that in just a second. Then we're gonna talk about bump stocks. The Supreme Court heard arguments about that today, about whether the bump stock ban still works. It's unclear how the court's gonna rule, but I wanna explain the issue to you anyway and get at an effort to try to deal with bump stocks the way it should have been dealt with in the first place. Then I wanna talk about video games. And I know some of you are not gamers, but there is a new game out that I think you need to at least know about, especially if you are a fan of trashy 90s sci-fi movies. Remember Starship Troopers? Well, they basically turned that into a video game. And the propaganda is so spot on. Ugh, I can't help but love it. That's coming up. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Good to have you with me today. Remember, you can go to nightlightjoshua.com for all of my social media links to follow the podcast version of the show so you can listen audio only at any time. You'll also find my Substack page with my original essays and articles. The merch store is online, and you can put a few dollars in the online tip jar if you like. There's also a contact me form, which goes directly to my email. That is probably the fastest, easiest way to contact me. Although, if you do have some trouble with the email form, as I have heard there has been, you can also just email me directly, joshua at nightlightshow.com, but you'll find all the links online at nightlightjoshua.com. Before I get to some of your comments, during the break, my, uh, my partner came in and he told me something that I, I, 
I must pass on to you. He said that whenever, you know, I told you about the McDonald's thing where you go through the drive-thru and they, they ask for your number and then they call you by name and then say, okay, what, what would you like? He said that every time they do that and they say, you know, Welcome to McDonald's. Can I have your number, please? Uh, 3892. Joshua? Yes, this is me. Hi, Joshua. What can we get for you? Every time he's like, I don't want us to feel like we're friends. Like, that's a very uncomfortable, we shouldn't even be in this relationship. And the fact that you called my name makes me feel like I need to drive off a cliff. Like, that is a very uncomfortable place to be, that you know me. I understand why they're doing it. And I get that they're trying to be familiar and they're trying to kind of acknowledge you. But it also feels a little bit like, hello, Joshua. We knew you'd be here today. What would you like to have? Oh, is it the usual? Like that is really a creepy relationship to have with a fast food chain. And now I want a salad. Let me get to some of your comments. Humanity on YouTube, hello. Humanity asks, Sonic offers happy hour deals. Is that considered dynamic pricing? I would say no. I would not call that dynamic pricing. That's just a deal. Dynamic pricing has more to do with using real-time data and an algorithm in a computer to make decisions about cost. So when you price out, for example, an airline ticket, <clears throat> if there's an event, excuse me, if there was an event in Las Vegas in early February of 2023, the price to fly to Vegas might be different than it was in early February of this year because of the Super Bowl. And if they know that people are gonna be flying because of the Super Bowl, they can use data to pick what the rates might meet, might be based on different cities, based on the demand, based on where the teams who are in the Super Bowl are going to come from, and specifically what airports people use combined with their other data. That's a form of dynamic pricing. But more to the point, it's more real time than even that. If this happened in New York, there was a Big, there, were, there were a number of subway issues during and after COVID, and a number of people found that they needed to take Lyft and Uber much more often. They needed to take them differently and more often. And what both Lyft and Uber, <coughs> excuse me, got in trouble for, or at least what they got dinged for, is jacking up the prices at times when the subways failed for whatever reason, and people were relying more on Lyft and Uber. Instead of just taking the business, the cost of riding went up very significantly. And then people began to scream about it, like, what the hell? We need you at this moment. And the city finally spoke up and said, that's that's not okay. But that's more like dynamic pricing. It's, oh, there's an opportunity, let's seize it right now. And it's also unpredictable. That's the other piece of dynamic pricing that I think is so obnoxious, is it relies, excuse me, it relies on a certain degree of opacity and of unpredictability to remain viable. They don't tell you what the dynamic price will be before they shift it. They just shift it. That's the obnoxious part about it. And that's why I feel like this is, <clears throat> this is potentially extremely problematic. And I just don't, don't know which way this is going to go. Irish Rover on, <laughs> on YouTube, smart Alec. Irish Rover writes, and cabbages were $1.50. What does a cabbage cost now? It don't cost $1.50? In, hold on. Speaking of using apps, let's go to my, I want to know. Where's my, I'm, I'm just curious what a cabbage costs. I, I don't eat a lot of cabbage. I'm not a big fan of cabbage. 
but I would like to know. Yeah, bitch. I'm using the app for the <coughs> grocery store chain Smith's. $1.98, sir. Ha! An organic one is $3.23. Lord Jesus. A bag of angel hair coleslaw cabbage, $2.29. A red cabbage is $3.23. So, depending on what color you want. I don't know what that means. The one color cabbage is more valuable than the other color cabbage, but that seems very inappropriate. Maybe that's a discussion we need to have. It's Black History Month, after all. Nora Cannon, our friend Nora, writes on YouTube, I am a penny pincher foodie and make groceries every day to take advantage of manager specials. Food inflation is killing me. Frozen potato products are about the highest unit cost increase as compared to peeling and cutting fresh potatoes. I hear you on that, Nora. I think often, and you know, in a way, it's it's sort of a, a cost of convenience, right? You have some Americans who become significantly more affluent, and so you have different kinds of food service chains that are able to respond to that level of affluence with people who are willing to spend the money for it, who are willing to spend a little more for convenience. And I'm not knocking that either. When I was working in Manhattan and, and living in Manhattan and working for NBC News, I really appreciated convenience. And I ate out way, way too much because I could afford to. And because I did a super stressful job and I was in a new city and I was tearing my hair out to try to figure out which way was up. And so I just was like, I'm, I'm, not, gonna let, I'm not gonna let this be a burden on me. Also, and I don't know how much this persists or how much y'all have dealt with this. During COVID, I had no problem eating out because I could afford to. And I knew there were a lot of people who were doing food service, especially because of COVID, you had a dramatic increase in services like Grubhub and DoorDash, Postmates, Caviar, Uber Eats. All of those services began to employ a lot more people who needed work during the pandemic. And so I know a lot of people who were relatively affluent, at least whatever counted as affluence where I was, who had no problem spending money on these services because it allowed them to tip the delivery drivers. And that was a way I think a lot of people felt, rightly or wrongly, felt that they were helping other people survive COVID during the pandemic. Does that make sense? And so I think some of this is societal, some of it's circumstantial. COVID was probably the best thing that ever happened to Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Caviar, Postmates, because it instantly like cement. I mean, you can buy groceries on, you know, you know, Instacart. You can, Instacart as well. I almost forgot that one. But it allowed us to, those of us who had more, to put money in the hands of those who had less and say, hang on, you know, we'll get through. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this. Thank you. We'll get through this. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you can buy light bulbs and power strips and and tools through Instacart now. It just kind of exploded. But I think that was also a piece of it, that we were trying to kind of support one another, but then these companies would change the surcharges and the prices and, you know, look on menus here. I, I can buy a pizza at Napoli here in Las Vegas for about 20 to 40% less than I would buy it if I used the their online store on the app Slice, which spoke, focuses specifically on pizza and Italian restaurants. It's called Slice. And I've noticed <clears throat> for a number of restaurants, the same item costs way less if you order it from the restaurant over the phone 
than if you do it on the app. That's screwy. <laughs> I think people are beginning to, to get kind of wise to that. Holly, Holly, I think I, sorry, Holly, just answered your point. Holly asked, I wonder if some of this is a residual effect of the pandemic and post-pandemic growing seasons. True, true. Didn't mean to just answer your comment before I read it, but yes. Holly also noted, eating my rage just got more expensive. Sorry about that, but yes. that. But no, no, actually, it's a good thing because this is an incentive to resolve your rage and to just discuss it in a thoughtful, calm way that makes you feel peaceful and tranquil. Ah, tranquility. And then we go eat haagen But not because we're angry, because you're happy, because ice cream makes you glad to be alive, not because you're meh. It's all in perspective. I like Philip's idea for new t-shirt merch. Surge pricing ain't sexy. <laughs> that would be fantastic. That would be absolutely wonderful. But yeah, it ain't sexy. Irish Rover also asked, so are we paying more for the actual food item or for all of the packaging and fuel to get the food to us? What is raising the costs the most? I think it's different for different kinds of products. Like <clears throat> the, the packaging I think has gotten, it depends on what the packaging is. If you're talking about a cereal box that's milled from a certain kind of paper, that all comes from trees. The cost of lumber is shifting because of climate change. If you're talking about the plastic bag inside the cereal box, plastic is made from petroleum. That is also changing in cost, but plastic is being made in different ways to offset the impact of fossil fuels, of the, the, the end of fossil fuels. Not enough to affect every consumer, but there's at least work being done. So it's going to vary. And then the actual flakes themselves are made from corn or rice or wheat, and that has to do with the price of various commodities. We saw in that Wall Street Journal piece, if I go back to the list that they mentioned in the piece... Some commodities like corn, wheat, coffee beans, and chicken have gotten cheaper, but prices for sugar, beef, and french fries are still high or rising. So if you're talking about, you know, a sugary cereal like Kix, for example, Kix is little puffs of corn, but they're sweetened. So the corn may cost less, but the sugar may cost more. If they're even using sugar, they might be using sucralose or some other aspartame or some other kind of substitute. So it's probably going to be different for different products. And then, you know, aluminum costs are going to be different for the soda that you buy. It's, it's all going to slide. The scales slide in a lot of different directions. But I think that's, that's one of the challenges is figuring out where the actual cost comes from and what you're willing to, you know, what you're willing to, to pay for. Um, and Nora, yes, I see your other point. Nora notes, living in Manhattan and using a midtown tiny kitchen is a real incentive to eat out. Very, very true. I think for a lot of people in some cities, not a lot of cities, but New York, parts of New York anyway, San Francisco for sure, there are a lot of people who tend to live in very small housing units where you just cannot store a lot of food. So you rely more on your corner bodega to get a bagel sandwich in the morning or your corner pizza place to get a slice every now and then or to your corner deli. It, it makes sense not to have to pay higher rent for a bigger apartment with a larger kitchen and more storage, but rather to just make discretionary purchases at places like Wendy's when you want something. 
as instead of, well, I can't afford a bigger place, so I'll just put my money into one-off food and that'll kind of make the difference up. Never mind that the price is now gonna fluctuate like crazy. One more story, <clears throat> excuse me, one more aspect of this story that I wanted to show you that I just learned about today that I find kind of interesting. There is always a political piece to all of this. And one of the, the pieces of this that I did not know about until today was a piece that just dropped in Bloomberg today, it dropped this morning, about Panera Bread. You know Panera Bread. There is a new law in California, a new minimum wage law that is going to push the minimum wage for fast food workers at certain chains up to $20 an hour, except at Panera Bread. Somehow, they got a carve out from this law. And why? Well, according to Bloomberg, you've got a guy named Greg Flynn who became a billionaire running fast food franchises like Panera Bread. He's the Panera Bread guy, or at least he's got two dozen Panera Breads. He runs a lot of fast food locations, made him a billionaire. And the state law that's going to raise the state minimum wage at fast food restaurants to $20 an hour contains an exemption for chains that bake and sell bread as a standalone item. Not the bread that forms the bun of a burger, but we bake bread, you buy a loaf of bread that is sold the way it looked when it came out of the oven. So if you bake and sell bread as a standalone item, you are exempt. Currently, the minimum wage limit is, is $16 an hour, or the minimum wage in California for fast food spots is $16 an hour. How did that happen? Well, apparently, sources tell Bloomberg that California's governor, Gavin Newsom, pushed for that. And guess who that benefits? People like Greg Flynn. And guess who Greg Flynn is a longtime donor to? Gavin Newsom. And guess who owns two dozen Panera Bread locations? This guy, Greg Flynn. Love it, right? People say that this exemption does not make sense. They have been negotiating this for years, this law, this overall increase for years. Gavin Newsom's office, or rather, excuse me, the governor himself, told reporters that the exemption came about as part of the sausage making of politics, as he put it. The governor's office says that the wage law was the, quote, result of countless hours of negotiations with dozens of stakeholders over two years, unquote, and that hundreds of thousands of Californians will benefit, which I do believe is true. Mr. Flynn, for his part, said in a brief conversation that he did not play a role in baking this bread exemption, but he did not respond to questions about his connections to Gavin Newsom, and Panera Bread did not reply to Bloomberg's multiple requests for comment. This law is called the FAST Act, F-A-S-T, and he has been a critic of the fast food bill for a while, said in 2022 that it would all but kill franchising in the state of California. On that piece, I do, to an extent, understand why some businesses are concerned about state regulations on restaurants. Parts of California, especially the San Francisco Bay Area, well, especially the city of San Francisco, are a nightmare to run restaurants. They are hostile to starting a new storefront. It is disgustingly difficult 
to start a business in San Francisco. So I cannot blame businesses completely for being upset with the business climate in California. They do have a point to an extent. They have a point. And there are a lot of other issues related to being a business person in California that can, to an extent, make business hard to do in ways that, say, Nevada, where I live, is totally, totally different. It's hard to plan moving back to California because Nevada, just on dollars and cents, is an easier place to live, particularly Vegas and Reno. But businesses have a point to an extent. But this carve-out, what? I didn't uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's a good reason for it, but I don't see it. Anyway, so that's Wendy's. Please, Wendy's, don't screw this up. <laughs> Please, Wendy's, don't screw this up. My goodness gracious. I want to move on and talk about the Supreme Court, but first I want to talk to you a little bit more about this program very briefly. To those of you who are watching on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, or X, I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you continuing to make time. The reason I wanted to take some time off uh, in the last week was not only because my partner and I, we had a little vacation, a little trip away to Palm Springs that I wanted to take and was not about to cancel. And the nice thing about being your own boss is you get all the vacation time you want. So, cool. But also because I wanted to take some time to just take stock of where the show is now. You may remember, some of you will know, that a couple of weeks ago, I did a kind of unplanned web stream at night. Now, normally, I only do the Ask Me Anything web streams at night, and I'll probably continue to do that. But I had best just been kind of wallowing and really kind of mired in a lot of just flat-out sadness over what's happening in the world, what's happening with my business, with just trying to figure out how to do this thing. I posted on the socials, some of you saw the post, but I posted on the socials this back on February 19th, so about a week and a half ago now, where I wrote, I feel surrounded by disconnection and despair. Seems like folks are so resigned to sports gambling, Netflix, and Instagram because being anesthetized with trivia feels better than fighting society's problems. I understand, but I often feel so ashamed for holding out hope. Am I alone? The good news is I'm not, and quite a lot of you, a lot of you responded and watched as I did another webcast and we just talked about what was going on. And you were very, very nice. It was nice of you to, to show up and, and to be part of this other webcast where I just sort of went through what I was feeling and talked through my emotions and, and tried to explain where my head was at and my heart was at and, and to just sort of break down what was going on with me and why it was such an impediment and what I was struggling with. Turns out a lot of you are struggling with this as well which was hugely encouraging. So thank you for showing up. Thank you for being there when I was in pain. The more interesting part of it, in a way, was that a whole lot of people showed up for that impromptu web stream. Normally total, this stream that we're doing right now gets me a total of about 20 to 25 people across platforms, mostly YouTube, at any given time. That impromptu unscheduled, and I stream for two hours at a time at least, that impromptu unscheduled nighttime web stream that nobody knew about until I started doing it, that was only about 47 minutes long, 
that got more than 50 people. It was double the audience in less than time. And they just showed up and they stayed. And as the stream went on, the audience kept rising. And I thought, okay, this confirms my suspicion. So it spoke to me in a way that said, I, I need to make some changes. I really do need to make some changes in this. And it also, to the point about not being dragged behind the news cycle, it exposed to me one of the reasons why this program is on during the afternoon, even though it's called the nightlight, and I always envisioned it as a nighttime program. I mean, the backdrop is city lights at night, right? But I did it during the afternoon so that I could be responsive to breaking news, which means I did it for the cycle, the news cycle. I did it so that I could feed the beast when it's hungriest. And that is an old legacy rhythm of being in news that is not actually serving me well. And from the number of people who chimed in and who showed up and who watched and listened, it's not serving many people well either. It may serve you because you're here. There is a world, there is a universe of people out there who were busy during the day, but who would connect if we were live in the evening. And it also would make this show a lot easier to build if I didn't have to race the news cycle and it would make my voice more central in my own work. It's a weird feeling to be like on Google Trends, figuring out what other people are talking about and watching my phone and watching the news and wondering, well, what should I be talking about? Or oh, I should be talking about what's already in front of me as opposed to what's inside me. Those are two very different conversations. One feels healthy and one feels, it feels a little decrepit. It feels ramshackle in the way that you walk through an old mall that has nice stores with lovely staff, but you can tell it's winding down. You can feel that something has shifted and you just don't wanna be there when the lights are shut off. If you look at, I read an article a few days ago that said the big problem with TV news right now is that it is basically taking the exact same format as radio news was in 1938 and adapted it for television. It never really evolved the format. And I thought, damn, that's true. <laughs> Ew, <laughs> that kind of hurts to hear, but it's also logical. So why am I married to this? Why don't I focus more on the thing that is in here as opposed to just out there. So basically what that means is that I'm gonna start shifting the time for this program, not this week. And no, Beverly, I see you on Facebook. Beverly writes, please don't say you're leaving. I am not leaving. I am not leaving. Beverly also asked, can I get you on Sirius XM? I wish, I really wish, but I'm working on different ways to make the show as accessible as possible. The YouTube app is probably the easiest way to get me and everything right now. I mean, you can get a lot of everything on YouTube. So I think YouTube's probably the easiest. You can also, if you have YouTube Premium, you can listen to audio even when your screen is off. So you can kind of podcast video. And so between YouTube and a podcast app, you probably have everything. I have looked at services like Live 365 for streaming. Uh, maybe I'll do that, but it's not kind of as core. So I'm going to leave this week is going to be streaming as normal. I'm going to have a normal show tomorrow. On Friday, I've got an interview taped that I am looking forward to sharing with you that I think you'll really like. 
And, and that'll be part of Friday's show, a little something special then that I'll be doing many more interviews in the future. I've got other interviews on the way that I'm booking on interesting topics and things that I'd like you to be part of, but it is going to be a different program. We will be able to have a very different impact at night than in the afternoon. So this week, the regular broadcast of the nightlight will still go on from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Starting tomorrow, I will also experiment with doing the show at night. So today is normal. Thursday, February 29th, will be at this time, and I'll be streaming in the evening. Still figuring out the time, but there'll be two shows. They'll be the exact same show. So if you don't want to watch now, watch later. If you want to stay on this broadcast, it'll be here. Friday, again, daytime, nighttime, exact same show. But this week is it for the daytime broadcasts. Next week, we're shifting to nighttime. Doesn't mean you won't be able to comment on the show. What I will do is be more diligent about forward promoting the show so that if you have comments, you can send them on social, you can send them via email. I'm working on getting a, vo a voicemail line so you can just call up a voicemail and record a message, which I've been really dying to do more of. So it's not that you'll lose engagement. We're just gonna change it because there's a world out there that really needs what we're doing. They need a place where they can be around thoughtful, intelligent, kind, silly people who care about one another. And there's not enough of that in the culture. But there is a huge number of people who really wanna have this conversation. They just don't know where to go. Well, you're building it. You're building it with me, and I could not be more grateful. Now it's time to evolve it. And I also think that'll make the show easier to do. It'll make it more fun. It'll ease some of the malaise and the despair, which, again, thanks to those of you who responded. Barbara, I see you on Facebook. Barbara wrote, saw that post of you and was sad for the rest of the day. I could relate to your feelings. Glad you have found a balance out of it. We all have to step back from time to time. True. And I'm sorry, Barbara, that my sadness made you sad. But I guess that's that's empathy, right? It's you, you feel a little bit of it. And I... I look forward to being more upbeat and more hopeful than I've been able to be in the past because I don't like chasing the news cycle anymore. When I went to MSNBC, I knew that I was going to start as an anchor, but we were going to try to build something that was more my style. That happened very briefly for just under a year. Then went over to NBC. That happened very briefly for just over a year. And then they let me go. So that kind of made it clear to me that the thing that is me did not belong there. Not really. I need to make a space where it belongs. And I need to make a space where we belong, where we don't have to compromise any of that other stuff and be dragged behind the news cycle. So that's why the shift is happening. Nora, I see your comment on YouTube. Nora writes, I really like the segments when you're digging into why a story matters from your perspective. I'm glad you're looking for ways to maintain the engagement. Thank you and thank you. Yes, that's what I wanna do. And that's what I'm gonna do in just a second with the bump stock thing. I don't want to just be like, hey, there's a story that just broke. Did you see it? I got the notification on my phone like you got it on your phone. <laughs> I don't need to tell you that. I just, there's no point. Like, I'm not your single source of truth. I just want to kind of be a friend who helps to walk through the darkness with you. And God, is it dark sometimes? And I think in that, I get meaning. And I take value from that. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I don't have to do this alone, but there's so many more people who need what we've built. So if you can join me this week for the evening broadcast, feel free. If you have to do one or the other, 
totally cool. And if you have feedback on one versus the other, let me know. And I will make, I'll, I'll put all my information on the screen. I'm gonna rework some of the on-screen graphics and the website so it's easier to contact me. But this is a shift that needs to happen. And if the show's gonna grow, this is, this is the opportunity, is to be there as people come to these digital spaces looking for something better than what they've gotten so far. So thank you for your support of this program. I look forward to the next chapter. And Sarah, don't think I didn't see you showing up late on the chat, sneaks in the back of room and sits down. I see you, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Good to have you here. Welcome. Oh, that's another thing about all of this. I've noticed that the first hour of the show has fewer viewers than the second hour of the show. More people are watching as the show goes on, generally, at least on YouTube. So it just kind of made sense to me, like, okay, I need to go, I need to go where people are. Wayne Gretzky's advice when we asked him how he became a great hockey player, skate where the puck is going. The puck is going later. And I think that makes a lot more sense to me. So, soapbox over. We will do the show. Hi, Sarah. Appreciate the wave. Hello. Good to have you with us. We will do the show, but for the benefit, for the benefit of those of you who just arrived late, mm -hmm. tomorrow we'll be doing the show at the regular time, and also at night, I'll post the time on social. Haven't quite narrowed it down yet, but I'll post it on social later today. So tomorrow and Friday, the same show, daytime and nighttime, but that'll be the end of the daytime shows on this Friday. Friday's the last dayside show. Next week, nightlight is nighttime across the board. We'll still do occasional things during the day, but the audience opportunity later in the day and the opportunity for impact is so strong. And I want to build on that. So more data, more details to come. Soapbox over. This has been a, a public service announcement. Want to take a quick break just to reset. When we come back, we will talk about the fight against gun violence. I know it's easy to look at every one of these fights like it's a fight for the soul of the Second Amendment. The case before the Supreme Court today that they heard oral arguments on was not about the Second Amendment, but it was about guns. More to the point, it's about another big political issue that has gotten vastly bigger in the rise of Trump era politics. And it is a sign of how very dysfunctional our government is. This whole case could have been prevented if our leaders had just done their jobs the first time. I'm gonna break down what we heard in the Supreme Court today. We don't know what the ruling's gonna be yet, but I'll break down this issue, and it has to do with bump stocks, these devices that turn a semi-automatic weapon into something resembling a machine gun. But can we regulate them the way we regulate machine guns? We'll talk about the bump stock ban when we come back. Welcome back, good to have you here today. Let's talk about the fight against gun violence, but not exactly about the Second Amendment. So many of our debates about guns in America, particularly mass shootings, boil down to the Second Amendment. There is another, perhaps larger problem that gets in the way of stopping gun violence. And the case that came before the Supreme Court today centers on that. So I don't want you to view this case the wrong way. If you think it's a Second Amendment case, you're looking at it the wrong way. And I want to clarify what it's actually about. I live in Las Vegas now. 
And before I lived here, my most vivid thoughts about Vegas were the strip, right? Gambling and all that, and guns. And those were two reasons why I thought I did not want to be here. Thankfully, this city has no more gun violence than any other major city, at least not to my eye, having lived in some major cities. And the strip is actually quite a benign part of Vegas life. But every time you drive past the strip, you see the Mandalay Bay Hotel, the big, gleaming, glittering, gold-looking hotel tower. It's this one. It's the one that's right near the south end of the strip. The Mandalay Bay is basically the southern edge of the strip right before you get to the airport. And many people remember the Mandalay Bay Casino because of what happened there on September 25th, 2017, when America suffered its deadliest mass shooting, at least in recent years, where hundreds of people got attacked by a gunman who was firing down from the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel on the south end of the Las Vegas Strip. It happened at a country music festival called the Route 91 Harvest Festival. And a man by the name of Stephen Paddock fired down onto the festival from his large luxury room on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay. You may remember that this guy was rather wealthy. He was a former accountant, a millionaire in his mid-60s. No one still knows exactly why this happened. No one's really clear as to why this occurred. What we do know is that he had an extremely large arsenal. He had an immense amount of weaponry. And he used frighteningly overwhelming force to basically rain down death on this festival. It happened, excuse me, on October 1st, 2017. And people outside of the festival just kind of gathered around one another because they were so shocked at what they had just dealt with. In this picture, that's from Getty Images. You can see there's the Tropicana, Ho or excuse me, the, uh, the Excalibur Hotel in the background, which is right next to the Mandalay Bay. One of the things that was discovered after Las Vegas Metro Police stormed his room was that he had an enormous arsenal of weapons in his suite. This is a picture from Las Vegas police. He had AR-15 assault rifles, AR-10 assault rifles, armor-piercing bullets. He had an enormous arsenal in his suite at the Mandalay Bay. Inside the suite, there were more than a thousand gun casings, spent gun casings that he had fired. Police got 24 guns total and more than 5,000 unused rounds of ammunition. So he had spent more than 1,000. He had shot more than 1,000 down on the crowd, but he had way, way more than that with him. But he also had something else in that arsenal. He had a number of weapons that had been altered with a device called a bump stock, which was designed to make them fire like machine guns. Now, to be clear, an AR-15 or an AR-10 is not a machine gun. Machine guns themselves are illegal in the United States. They were banned back in the days of Al Capone. But bump stocks are able to essentially use the kinetic energy of the recoil of a gun to make the gun push back faster. When you fire an assault rifle, it kicks back. The bump stock makes the kick back kick forward again. 
And when it kicks forward, it kicks forward with just enough force so that when your finger comes off the trigger when you fire, the forward recoil pushes your finger again and makes the gun fire again. And then the weapon bumps back, it recoils, the bump stock sends it forward again and it fires and it recoils and bumps back and recoils and bumps back so fast that it essentially makes an assault rifle or another weapon that it's attached to an automatic weapon. Automatic just means you pull the trigger once and it fires over and over. That's what a bump stock does. It can essentially turn a semi-automatic weapon where you can pull, 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 and it keeps firing into an automatic weapon. You pull once and it just keeps firing. This guy, Stephen Paddock, from his suite at the Mandalay Bay, had bump stocks on a number of the weapons. After that shooting occurred, a number of people said bump stocks have got to go. Even the NRA, after a whole lot of deliberation, came out against bump stocks. And so the Trump administration went after bump stocks and they banned them. Well, that ban was before the U.S. Supreme Court today. Justices hurled oral arguments about the bump stock ban and whether or not it is constitutional. Now, we talked on this show before that there are other cases related to guns at the court. One of them that they heard arguments on back in November was U.S. versus Rahimi. That has to do with the federal law that bans people who are under domestic violence restraining orders from owning a gun. That is a Second Amendment case. This case is not. This case, Garland versus Cargill, about the bump stocks, is not a Second Amendment case. It's not being argued on those grounds. And I know that doesn't mean we ignore the Second Amendment arguments, but that's not what this is particularly. This one has to do with a very different area of the law. But here's, here's the, the background of it. I'm reading from this article on SCOTUS blog, which I find very, very helpful. Again, 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas killed 60 people, 6-0 people, injured 500 more people. And the next year, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, what we call ATF, issued a rule that said that bump stocks are basically machine guns. Previously, ATF did not think that. It said that only certain kinds of bump stocks counted as machine guns. But the rule they passed in 2018 changed that. It said that anyone who owns or possesses a bump stock needs to either take them to an ATF office and just hand them over, no questions asked, or destroy them. And anyone who did not was subject to criminal penalties. This case was brought by a guy named Michael Cargill, who owns a gun store in Austin, Texas. He surrendered the bump stocks, presumably all of them, but then went to court arguing that the rule was invalid. His argument had to do with the legal definition of a machine gun. And remember, the definition is in the law. It is in a federal statute that regulates guns. The ATF interpreted the federal statute in regard to bump stocks. Bump stocks weren't a thing back in Al Capone's day. They just fired machine guns. And he argued that that did not apply. Federal appeals court ruled that Cargill, the gun store owner, was correct. The appeals court said that a machine gun 
is a gun that shoots automatically, and here's the key from the appeals ruling, quote, by a single function of the trigger, unquote, or any accessory that allows a gun to do so. But even if the definition wasn't clear, the appeals court ruled that bump stocks don't count as machine guns. Why? Here's the legal doctrine you need to know. And this is why I keep saying it's not a Second Amendment case. It's not a Second Amendment case because it's not. There is a legal doctrine that I didn't know about until this case because I'm not a lawyer called the rule of lenity. Have you heard this word, lenity? You've heard of lenience, right? This is kind of a similar concept. The rule of lenity is, it's not really like a rule rule, it's a legal principle that has held in American jurisprudence and other places. It basically says if you have a criminal statute about something you can't do or can't have, something that's prohibited or penalized, and if the statute is ambiguous, you basically resolve it generally in favor of the defendant if you can do that without violating the intent of the law. So if it's unclear whether or not something advantages me or the state or whatever, the rule of lenity says you tend to lean, you tend to be more lenient in the direction of the defendant. And under that rule of lenity, Michael Cargill argued that the ATF's interpretation of the bump stock ban was unconstitutional. Does that make sense? He's saying that basically that ATF leaned too hard in broadening the interpretation of this rule to include these devices and that it should be more lean, lenient. It should lean more towards gun owners and away from the idea of criminalizing people who own bump stocks. The Fifth Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court, agreed with Michael Cargill on that. There was another challenge to this in the Sixth Circuit. They reached the same conclusion, but they said that this rule that ATF put forth is ambiguous and that rule of lenity applies because the federal firearms laws do not, quote, clearly and unambiguously prohibit bump stocks, unquote. And that appeals court said that it was bound, that it had to read the statute in the defendant's favor. The rule of lenity said, if we're not clear, when, when in doubt, favor the defendant. And that's why this case is at the Supreme Court. That's why this is not purely a Second Amendment case. But there was a third challenge to the rule and that one went in favor of ATF. That federal appeals court, the one in D.C., upheld the ATF rule. And it said, quote, under the best interpretation of the statute, a bump stock is a self-regulating mechanism that allows the shooter to shoot more than one shot through a single pull of the trigger, unquote. That makes it a machine gun. That's why this is before the Supreme Court. The Biden administration asked the Supreme Court to review the various rulings that struck down the rule. Then the bump stock owners asked the Supreme Court to review the DC ruling that upheld the rule. And then in November, the justices agreed, we, we have to deal with this. We have to deal with this whole issue. So this is, this is about the details of how statutes work. Now it's unclear exactly how the Supreme Court is going to resolve this matter. The latest update that I saw from the New York Times, from 
uh, Abby Van Sickle, who is reporting from Washington, and also uh, Adam Liptak, who has covered the Supreme Court forever and ever and is a fabulous Supreme Court reporter, basically says that these, the justices seemed rather largely ideologically divided about whether or not the Trump administration overstepped its bounds by imposing this ban. Some of them, according to the Times, said they had concerns over the broader implications of that. The three more progressive justices, uh, Lena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, said they were concerned about overturning a ban on a device that was used in a mass shooting. Some of the more conservative justices questioned whether the ban was fair. Because if you bought a bump stock before this ban took place, you bought a legal weapon. You bought a legal accessory to a weapon, rather, excuse me. But you didn't break the law because it was legal at the time. And even with the ATF rule, it criminalizes something that had been legal. And so the issue for the more conservative justices is criminalizing something that had been legal. Sidebar, isn't that what they just did with abortion? Criminalizing something that had been legal? Just a thought. That just occurred to me, but anyway, back to guns. And again, they note that this is not a case that turns on the Second Amendment. Rather, and this is the important thing, and this is the way that the New York Times puts it, and I'm glad they said this, from the New York Times, from their live blog, the case does not turn on the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Instead, watch this, it is one of a number of challenges aimed at curtailing the power of administrative agencies. In this instance, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. A ruling against the agency could limit its ability to regulate firearms and accessories. Why is that important? Because you've heard for the last few years, particularly in the run-up to and throughout the course of the Trump administration, a lot of talk about the so-called administrative state. These career bureaucrats, federal employees, who work at a number of regulatory agencies that are interpreting statutes, but that don't have the exact same power as Congress to make law. So what happens is Congress says, we need to have someone in the federal government who oversees transportation. We don't know the roads. Let's create a U.S. Department of Transportation and give it the power to set rules based on these areas of law. Then they create an agency, they give it a budget, they make a structure of it. There's a secretary of that agency who oversees the larger structure. And then within their power, they get to set rules that go as something called the Federal Register. They go into that, rather. This is the Federal Register. It's at federalregister.gov. And it is basically the daily journal of everything the United States government does. Don't you ever let me hear you say, I don't know what the government is doing. They do it all behind closed doors. There's a hell of a lot of information that you can find with a search. You can click for it. And what the Federal Register does is it gives notice of every new rule that the federal government is considering enacting. All of them. You can comment on them, often there are hearings, every single rule in the federal government, and these are different from laws. Congress creates an agency, gives the agency power to set rules with the force of law. 
And if there's an issue, those go to what's called an, an administrative law judge, which is different from like a judge in a regular court. The issue here that a lot of conservatives have brought up is that these agencies, which are often setting rules on things like environmental policy, educational policy, matters of diversity and equity and inclusion, that a number of them have gone too far and that they need to be reined back in, that Washington has way too much control over the lives of everyday people, that these, here's another term you've heard a lot of, unelected bureaucrats are running roughshod over the American landscape and setting rules that should actually be set by members of Congress. Now, as a matter of simple legal policy, that's not the craziest of questions, right? You gotta make sure that everything like goes in the right vein or the right strand of the law. But the larger issue is whether or not decisions can be made by professional career federal workers or whether they have to be made more politically. Administrative law is still politicized because Congress gives it the power to make it, but it's a step removed. It's almost like, well, it's a step removed. If it was much more tied to Congress, it would be much more tied to politics. And if you are, for example, a diehard Trump supporter, your hope is that you can get everything in Washington coalesced around Donald Trump and or Trump loyal candidates and then demolish all of this other administrative infrastructure so that everything is much more centrally controlled by loyalists to the party and to Donald Trump. Does that make sense? Now, if that's your political belief, then that's your choice. The difficulty of this is that a lot less gets done. So when someone shoots up the Las Vegas Strip, it's harder to prevent that device from being used in other attacks. Because the administrative laws, the rules that are written to prevent things like this cannot stand on their own. Now, is this a legitimate legal question? I think so, sure. But there's a larger issue around the ways in which we defer to administrative agencies. There was a Supreme Court case involving Chevron forever ago. And so this is often referred to as Chevron deference, where these administrative agencies are presumed to have the legal interests of the American people at heart, and we tend to defer to them. Dismantling Chevron deference is part of this whole fight against the so-called administrative state. But at the end of the day, the Supreme Court heard these cases today, these oral arguments today, because Congress could not do its job. Because a ban on bump stocks, which was largely bipartisan, and even had the blessing of the NRA, and I don't know if you remember, after the shooting happened in October of 2017, the whole country was on pins and needles. We were like, what's the NRA going to say? Are they going to be for doing something? Or are they just going to kind of sit on their hands like they did forever, like they did at Sandy Hook and forever and ever? And even the NRA said, okay, bump stocks, we'll, we'll let those go. But only bump stocks. So at that political moment, the United States could have done something dramatic. It could have actually made a difference. But it didn't. It left it to ATF because that was the fastest way to get it done. Now, that's not a terrible way to get it done because it's probably within ATF's power. But if Congress had just passed the damn law, we wouldn't be in this situation. Then we would actually have to argue it 
on different grounds. But because you had Second Amendment advocates like the NRA who said that this was cool, that may well not have happened. Now we might have to go back to the drawing board and deal with bump stocks all over again. You see how quickly this becomes a circular issue about our problems with legislating things, with running the country? This is why Congress's approval rating is so damn low, because they can't get their act together even when everyone agrees. That is the difficulty of our current political climate. That's the real risk, that we have to be able to get leaders in place and have a political environment that is able to do the things we agree on. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. Now, just so you know, there is a bill that would ban bump stocks. Congresswoman Dina Titus, who is a Democrat who represents Las Vegas, which is where the Mandalay Bay shooting happened, introduced a bill last January that would close this loophole. If you go, and I'm, I'll show you again, I love these websites, congress.gov is the official website of the United States Congress. You can search right at the top, bump stock, in quotes, so it searches the exact phrase, and boom, you will get, <coughs> excuse me, you'll get House Resolution 396 called the Closing the Bump Stock Loophole Act of 2023. Congresswoman Dina Titus is the sponsor. There are 131 co-sponsors on this bill. 131. Only one of whom is a Republican. Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. All the others are Democrats. But you got people from all across the country, and maybe that's why this bill hasn't moved, is because for some reason, the bipartisan energy we had after the Route 91 shooting is, is gone now, or at least for this measure. But this would, this is designed to do what the ATF rule might do, depending on how the Supreme Court rules on it. All it actually does is it adds bump stocks to the list of firearms under the National Firearms Act. And it also regulates bump stocks under the Gun Control Act of 1968. Those are the two main laws that regulate guns in America, the National Firearms Act and the Gun Control Act. If you look at the text of this item, it's really straightforward. It just defines what a bump stock is, redefine and defines what a semi-automatic weapon is. And it basically just says, you know, add bump stock. It, it's basically just amending the word bump stock. It also adds a one-year grace period. So if you have a bump stock within a year of enactment of this law, you can register the bump stock and include the information that's necessary with the National Firearms Registration and Transfer Record. So basically, you're grandfathered in if you do it within a year of the act passing. So it's not a straight up ban. You could, and I would suspect if this became law, there would be a run on bump stocks and people would register them to make sure that they could keep them. And then that would be their way of hanging on to them. But under this law, that would be allowed. But after that, bump stocks would become unlawful. So there is a bill. Now, whether that grandfathering is the right way to go or not, debatable. But it's possible. This is why this is happening. This is the impact of our current political climate, that when something as 
obviously awful as a mass shooting on the Las Vegas. You have no idea during the Super Bowl as it was airing. Excuse me. Hit my microphone there. Stay still. Get stay out of my way. You have you have no idea how often during the Super Bowl while it was airing in the back of my head I'm like please don't let anything happen. Please just let's just have a peaceful game. Please 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 security. Please Las Vegas police. Please FBI. Please ATF. Please 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 have done your job. And then when they interrupted the show for that guy who streaked across the field, well, half streaked. He was he was he took his shirt off and ran across the field. That little twerp that I told you who was actually just like advertising his his course on day trading. <sighs> Florida man ruined Super Bowl film at eleven. That guy. I was so nervous. So I mean, my heart stopped beating for a few seconds until the game continued because all I could think about was the shooting at the Mandalay Bay. That's all that I could think about was like, oh my God, what if, oh my God, oh my God. I can't, I can't watch this. I can't watch this. I was in the studio on January 6th at NBC in Studio 6E waiting for Lester Holt and Savannah Guthrie to end the special report so that I could take over and it never ended. And all I could think was, oh my God, please don't let this be that day. Please don't let this be another day like that. Please, I can't. Please, please. And thank God it was just him being stupid on the field. But I don't know how to not think about that here. I feel safe in Las Vegas, but you're never far away from that. And then after that shooting at UNLV, that's all. It, I flashed right back. And I wasn't even here when that happened. I was in Washington. Flashed right back. This is why we have to get beyond the political inertia of our time. That's why we have to move past this. That's why we have to find a way to keep going through this. We have to find a way. But there are measures that can be taken, including possibly Congressman Titus's bill. Maybe the bill needs to evolve. Maybe it's not good enough. I don't know. But there's a way. But for now, the Supreme Court's going to decide it. If you're cool with that, great. If you're not, there are other options, but we're going to have to solve this whole administrative state thing sooner rather than later, because gun violence is not the only problem that this involves. We're going to have many, many more, and this is going to get even harder to resolve if we don't resolve it together. But we have a way to resolve these problems together. It's called Congress. Sorry, but that actually is our best bet. I'm going to check your messages in the chat. I may read a couple when we come back. But I do want to talk to you about video games. We're going to get into video games in just a minute. There is a video game that I absolutely love. I love it so much. When this show is over, I'm going to go play. Well, I'm going to go get some food, and then I'm going to go play. It's called Helldivers 2. I know we don't talk a lot about gaming here, but I love gaming. And this is one of the new hits that just came out. We talk a lot on this show about democracy, and I think if democracy is important to you and if it's a concern of yours, then you need to know about this game, Helldivers 2. Not because the game is some threat to democracy or, or whatever, but it is full of propaganda. It's full of the best kinds of propaganda that remind us of the dangers and the absurdity of the propaganda that we see on the rise in some parts of the world and that some people are concerned about rising here in the US. I'm gonna show you a little bit about Helldivers 2, and its vision of an America ruled by managed democracy. 
have you heard that term before? I heard it in the game and I was like, manage democracy? Hey Google, what, what is it? And I, I, it is a fantastic view of hopefully a not at all nearby future. I'll show you Helldivers too before we go. Welcome back. Let's get to a few of your comments before we talk about video games. Nora noted on YouTube, this SCOTUS term is going to be the administrative state term. Yes, in a number of ways, it has been that. Uh, there are a number of other cases involving this so-called administrative state that are worth watching. We talked about some of them on the show before. Uh, for those of you who may have missed that previous episode, there are a bunch of cases. I'm just looking at a quick Reuters write-up on this. There have been some cases where the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration. For example, the COVID-19 vaccine requirement for healthcare facilities. So it's not completely one way or the other, and we're still waiting on a number of cases that are still pending. But this matter of what we call Chevron deference is in a kind of interesting place right now. It's a legal doctrine that's about 40 years old. There were cases involving commercial fishermen who were trying to get around fees for a, a fish conservation program, and that became kind of a larger referendum on the so-called administrative state. Billionaire Charles Koch is supporting those fishermen as well as other conservative groups who are trying to get the Supreme Court to either overturn or rein in this precedent, a Supreme Court precedent involving Chevron. Again, Chevron deference says that judges should, generally speaking, defer to how federal agencies interpret ambiguities in U.S. laws. That's directly involved in this case around bump stocks. Beyond that, there is also a case involving the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the way that it is funded. Critics of the CFPB say that it's too powerful, it creates too much red tape, that it is accountable only to itself and it needs to be more accountable to the people. The case that came in October was brought by payday lending firms. And they're going after the way that the CFPB is funded directly. It draws money from the Federal Reserve rather than being directly funded by Congress. And the challengers say that that is unconstitutional, that lawmakers have to have the power of the purse. According to Reuters, a few of the court's more conservative justices didn't seem to buy that nor did the three more progressive justices. So that may or may not survive. The third case, or another case, has to do with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates stocks, bonds, Wall Street. The issue has to do with the way that the SEC hears appeals to its rulings. The SEC has in-house administrative judges. And the challenge comes from a man named George Jarchese, who runs a hedge fund based in Texas, the SEC barred him from the industry for securities fraud. And so he responded by challenging the entire legality of the entire system that banned him from trading securities. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is based in New Orleans, ruled in his favor. So now that case is also before the U.S. Supreme Court, or at least they're considering it. They heard oral arguments on it. And the issue has to do with whether or not those in-house proceedings violate the Seventh Amendment's guarantee of a right to trial by jury. 
that could be a much bigger issue, not just for, you know, securities fraud, but for everyone who has any kind of a case that's pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. So lots and lots and lots of cases that are involved in this. And it, it has tremendously wide-ranging, you know, impacts on things far beyond guns. It's also very easy, I think, for these issues to get muddy because of our political climate. They can very easily get muddied in terms of, oh, you're just coming after the Second Amendment. Well, no, this is big too. It's not the Second Amendment, but it is definitely big as well. Let me move on a little bit to talk about gaming. I know there's so much more we could discuss around these various issues. It is nonstop, these issues, my goodness. But I do want to talk to you about gaming for just a second. I think a lot of people who follow pop culture don't get enough credit for also paying attention to issues of democracy and being thoughtful about them, even as they seek to endure them. And a new video game called Helldivers 2 I think puts a fine point on this. And there's it's one of the many reasons why I think this game is so lovable. If you don't know this game, you should at least know what Helldivers 2 is. First of all, remember that movie Starship Troopers, that Paul Verhoeven kind of trashy sci-fi movie that starred Casper Van Dien and Denise Richards and Neil Patrick Harris as freedom fighters in a dystopian future where the world is run by this kind of totalitarian global government that deals in tons of propaganda. It's based around this fight against these bug-like aliens that come from a planet called Klendathu. And so the movie is filled with all this propaganda about why you should should fight and, and be a real citizen and, and join the, the galactic army that's fighting against these bugs. And it's all about the fight against these bugs who it's very graphic, it's very violent. It takes place in kind of a co-ed future where men and women are both infantry fighters. They're both in the, you know, the Air Force. And it's just a wild film. Well, there is a sequel to an old-ish video game called Helldivers, which was kind of a top-down um, action RPG game. Helldivers 2 is a third-person shooter game where you basically play online with other players together to repel the invasion of these bugs called Terminids and also these robotic kind of evil android things called automatons, which are sort of like the Terminator, the big nasty robots from Terminator. And you're fighting on two fronts. There's a third front that is going to emerge eventually, but it hasn't quite been turned on by the game's creators. Helldivers 2 is fantastic. When it first went online, it had issues with the network where I, I kept getting booted off the network or couldn't connect with other players. And you really do need a team of four to do really well in these missions. Doing it by yourself is just not viable. But it's a really fun game. The game hooked me from the very beginning because in the beginning of the game, it plays this recruitment movie, basically about the threat that the Terminids present. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, I'm gonna enjoy this. <laughs> really gonna enjoy this game. Fair warning, these clips that I'm gonna play for you do contain fairly graphic violence. Most of it is of green alien blood, but if creepy crawly things and blood bother you, then this video may be a little bit much. So listen, but you may not want to watch. With that said, here is the opening scene from Helldivers 2. 
Super Earth, our home. Prosperity, liberty. Hi there. <laughs> Democracy, our way of life. Oh, hello. But freedom doesn't come free. <laughs> no! Sweet liberty! No! <laughs> Look familiar? Scenes like these are happening all over the galaxy right now. You could be next. That is, unless you make the most important decision of your life. Prove to yourself that you have the strength and the courage to be free. Join the Helldivers. Become part of an elite peacekeeping force! See exotic new life forms. And spread managed democracy throughout the galaxy. Become a hero. Become a legend. Become a Helldiver. And there's that term again, managed democracy. And that's basically what a managed democracy is. It has all of the trappings of democracy, but none of the actual freedoms or powers or liberties or stuff like that. Helldivers is a game that caught a lot of people... I think it caught me by surprise because I usually don't play these kinds of games, partly because the online gaming world, for me as a person with a job who doesn't spend a lot of money playing these games or a lot of time, is just, you're basically cannon fodder. You are useless in a game like this. The cool thing about this is that you're playing cooperatively. This is a, I wanna show you a piece of the, the gameplay. This is one of the most popular gameplay areas in this game from a, a planet called Malevolon Creek. This is what the game looks like. You've got a bunch of people who are playing side by side. You can call down weapons, attacks from orbiting ships that are called stratagems, and you basically work together. Unlike many of these online games where you're basically competing against one another, everyone is playing side by side to achieve the same mission. So as you go from planet to planet and sector to sector, you succeed or fail as a global community of players. And sometimes planets are lost. Malevolon Creek, which looks very Vietnam, I don't know if you've noticed, was one of everyone's favorite planets to play because it is so rich and so intense and has that Vietnam look to it. If you die, one of the other players can fire a stratagem and reinforce you and they can bring you back in the game. And that's part of what I think people like is that we're all playing the same game at the same time together and work and you can catch fire, my goodness gracious. And if you don't put yourself out after a while, you can be killed and then eventually someone else will bring you in. Like that, exactly, you can get eliminated. I think the thing that people really love about this game is we're all playing the same game at the same time and sometimes planets can be lost, including Malevolon Creek. Players found out recently that the planet that they referred to as Space Vietnam had been lost and that the planet was no longer available. When you complete a planet, it says 100% liberated and you can't play it anymore. But sometimes the planets don't get completed either in time or because too many people lose 
And so everyone who wants to go there gets a retreat order that says Planet Lost. And a lot of people got very, very sad about the fact that you can see some of the very sad, you know, posts online of a sad um, SpongeBob at the diner. And then people just, they, they really felt away about this game and not being able to complete the thing. Um, even repeating the, no, sweet liberty from the, from the trailer. But I think the thing that really impressed me about this game is the fact that it is very aware and the audience for the game is extremely aware of how it deals with the imagery of totalitarianism and that we're very clear eyed on the nature of the game we're playing even as we play it. That I think is a hopeful sign. That I think is good. Because no one wants to live in this kind of super earth where it's so awful. But we can play in that space because we understand what we're seeing. It's almost like a game like Wolfenstein, for example, which takes place in a parallel universe where the Nazis won World War II and technology continued to progress. We don't want the Nazis to win, obviously, even though there's a handful of them who think that it's cool to, to poke their heads out of the ground. But because we've wrapped our heads around that, we can play a game like Wolfenstein because we are grounded in the reality that democracy makes games like that possible because the game is a critique on Nazism. And if we didn't have that aesthetic distance from it, we couldn't critique it. It's why we can watch a Mel Brooks movie. It's why the producers can get away with a song like springtime for Hitler and Germany and we can laugh about it rather than pearls being uncontrollably clutched at the idea, we have enough distance from it and we have enough of an allegiance to what we'd rather live in, that the game can be fun. The other piece that makes this interesting, the more that I learn about this game, is that they are very serious about the actual imagery underneath this in ways I did not know. I mentioned Starship Troopers. There's a piece from the LA Times back in the and uh, then the 90s when this game came out where they talked to Ed Neumeyer who wrote the script and adopt, adapted it from the novel. And they talk about the differences between the novel and the movie. And one of the things that they explain is how they came up with those big bug creatures, the, the aliens from Klandathu from the movie Starship Troopers who are a lot like the Terminids in Hell, Hell uh, Divers 2. And he says that one of the reasons why they made them bugs was that his wife had this catatonic fear of insects. But then they changed it from the original description because Paul Verhoeven, the director, said, I just can't see a bug with a gun in his hand. And so they changed it to these like creepy crawlies rather than like a more uh, anthropomorphic insect. But the reason also extends to a degree of, well, Neumeier said that in describing them, he said, they have a ground speed of 35 miles per hour. Their mode of attack is overwhelming force. My science teacher in seventh grade said, the Chinese, they'll march at you like zombies with wooden sticks in their hands. And even if you had a machine gun in your hand, they'd overwhelm you. That's what I think about the bugs. Racist. <sighs> but that almost makes the imagery of the movie hit harder. That the reason they're using bugs is because that is the ultimate form of dehumanization. 
because they're not human. They're an enemy you can kill without regard. And even Ed Neumeyer at the top of this piece in the LA Times, he says, I wanted to do a big, silly, jingoistic, xenophobic, let's go out and kill the enemy movie. And I had settled on the idea that it should be against insects. Right. That's the point. And if we have been warned about anything over the last couple years, especially now with the intense hatred of transgender people, LGBTQ people more broadly, but especially trans people, with an increase in anti-Semitism, with an increase in anti-black crimes, with an increase in anti-immigrant crimes, with an increase in anti-Muslim hatred, an increase in othering in general, it's that the last step before we commit atrocities to people is dehumanization. And I think we could not enjoy a game like this unless we were very clear on the nature of what that is. And the nice thing is that the players of this game get that. By the way, before I show you that, I, in looking for that article I just showed you from the LA Times, one source mistakenly said it was the New York Times, and so I ended up with a New York Times article about the attack of the summer movies. But that summer, do you know how many other big movies came out? We're talking about the death of the movie industry right now. Do you know how fertile that year was in movies? It's kind of incredible. This was also the same year that we got, as summer epics, Twister, which is now being remade into a sequel, irresistibly titled Twisters. But that was the same summer that we got Mission Impossible, the first Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise, which I still think is a wonderful film, Dragonheart, The Rock, The Cable Guy, Eraser, and Independence Day. All those movies came out in the same summer. That's how crap movies are right now. We get one or two, maybe three, that are big summer hits. Hollywood is crossing its fingers for the upcoming release of Dune Part 2, that Denis Villeneuve will save Hollywood. We never had to rely on one director to save Hollywood, ever. Did you notice how happy the studios were that they got Barbieheimer? Two good movies at one time? We used to have it much... I'm sounding like an old man. Anyway, back to Helldivers 2. But the lore around this is very clear. And if you look at players, as you play through the game, they're found objects. And for those of you who are not gamers, I completely understand. It looks like just a lot of shoot 'em up and a lot of button pushing. A lot of these games have found objects, artifacts that have audio recordings or pictures or documents or letters that begin to tell the story of the world that the game happens in. I love a lot of games like that because they are so rich in the in-game lore. That's what kind of keeps me playing a lot of these games. And some games are all story. Alan Wake 2 is a very lore-heavy story. So, and a lot of these games also, not Helldivers per se, but a lot of these games allow you to shift, Cyberpunk 2077 is another example. They allow you to shift the difficulty level to make it so easy that the button pushing is really quite incidental. You're actually just playing it for the story. So you don't have to worry about being hyper-coordinated with your fingers and thumbs. All you have to do is be able to control it enough to get from scene to scene and this gloriously rich, massive story unfolds before you. 
Helldivers is very similar in that regard. And a lot of the people who have played through the game have noticed that a lot of the lore in the game is clearly quite political. First of all, the whole managed democracy thing that they talk about in the, in the opening scene, there is one in-game encyclopedia from the original Helldivers that explains what this is. That entry says, utilizing computer-aided voting software, citizens are asked to answer several questions and the outcome of their vote is decided upon by the computer. This removes the uncertainty that existed in the old systems where voters didn't understand fully what they were voting for, giving us managed democracy. Ooh. I don't think this is what we should be doing with AI. I haven't heard anyone suggest this, but Lord Jesus. Beyond that, the bugs, the terminids in this game, one person found in one mission, your objective is to destroy an illegal broadcast station on one of the terminid planets. And the messages that are being illegally broadcast say things like, this threat is all about oil, or wake up people, the bug menace is a super earth construct. And the reason they're saying that is because when you kill the terminids, unbeknownst to the Helldivers, I presume, the bodies of those bugs break down into oil. And that explains why you're killing them. The idea, the insinuation, is that the terminids are not a naturally occurring species. They were either created or genetically modified by scientists on super Earth, a la Alien, to create either a more compelling military threat that can be used against enemies, or more oil, or both. So there's a fossil fuel storyline under there that never comes up in your fighting. But the fact that it doesn't come up doesn't mean that no one finds it. The players are finding this. They're aware of this. And the, game, the production studio built this into the game. Beyond that, the robots, the automatons, those big, scary Terminator-looking thing. In the first Helldivers game, there was a faction of cyborgs who looked a bit more human. But they were originally, in the first game, rebels who seceded from Super Earth. And they tried to create this socio-anarchistic feudal society, which made them into terrorists. And they used this kind of AI wetware modification. And then over time, they turned into these machines. But if you check out some of the propaganda in their broadcast towers on an automaton planet, it says things like, we have eliminated inequality. If you sneak up on a patrol of them, apparently you can hear them chanting in unison. Now, I don't want to get that close. Anybody that got chainsaws for arms ain't getting a hug from me. But I believe this account of it. And the hell pods, the things that you shoot down to the planet in, apparently those were created to suppress a peaceful socialist breakaway state. I know that this is a lot of lore. I know that this is like, okay, nerd, you invented this world to, to fight back against heavy-handed government and totalitarianism and blah, blah, blah. Yes, of course, this is the reasons this all tracks. But that's the point that a game like Helldivers can succeed not just by moralizing, but by being a great game that makes a great point. And I kind of feel like that is a good thing for allowing us to have these conversations without having to have the conversation. It's not heavy-handed. Helldivers 2 is super fun. And if you never get into any of the lore of this game, you will love this game. 
But I also love that gamers who are receiving this kind of lore are not rejecting it. They're embracing it. They're not fixated on it because you go to the game to play the game. But I'm grateful at least that gamers are like, this game is amazing. Now, once they worked out the whole issue with like getting booted offline and kicked off the network, which made me crazy, then the game works fine. And once it's working, it is a blast. It's hard, it's fun, it's challenging. You work together, like it's, it's a bop. It's, it's a bop. But I also like that we can have that conversation too. I think that's pretty cool, but that's me as a, as a nerdy gamer. Let me get to a few of your comments before I let y'all go. Nora, oh great, Nora writes, my two mid-20s grandsons are all excited that you're covering it. They're serious gamers. Excellent, hello mid-20s grandsons. Glad to have you on the show. I love this game. I think this game is very cool. I will also note I was trying out Helldivers and another game called Skull and Bones at the same time. Skull and Bones is an open world pirate game where you play a crewman on a pirate ship that got destroyed in a battle and you start your own ship and begin to build your crew and your, your infamy, your reputation. Skull and Bones is a blast. And I love that the demo unlocks the entire game, not a sliver of it, but the whole game for eight hours. And then if you buy the game, you pick up right where you left off. Loved it. It's more expensive than Helldivers, but Skull and Bones was, that was definitely my kind of game. But I'm glad you guys like it. I'm, I hope that this conversation is useful to you. Holly wrote, collaborative tabletop games have been an emerging market for a while. I'm excited to see it expanding into the video game arena. That's cool. I'm not really big on tabletop games. I never got into them. I don't know why I never got into them. Oh, yes, I do. I know why. Because the 80s when I was growing up, Dungeons and Dragons was the work of the devil. And so I was not allowed to do that. I was not allowed to play those games. Plus, I think there was a perception that those kinds of tabletop games and role-playing games were a white thing. And so black kids were kind of admonished away from doing white stuff, as it were. So I think I had a lot of other stigmas that were very, very effective on me. I still have stigmas that are effective on me to this day. So I've had to do a lot of like, you know, scrubbing my mind with mental floss to get rid of a lot of the dumb stuff I was taught as a kid. And I think that's why I never got into it. But that's good to know that tabletop games are, are, are doing that. Drew on the chat. Hey, Drew, good to have you on. Drew wrote on YouTube, self-awareness makes for some of the best video game experiences. See also Conker's Bad Fur Day. I'm not familiar with that game. Conker's Bad Fur Day. I will have to, I'll have to look that up. Uh, DMT Elf on Twitch, welcome, good to see you there. DMT Elf noted Curse of the Pharaoh. I will have to check that one out as well. And <laughs> Nora picked up on my Mel Books reference and continued the lyric, winter for Poland and France. Yes, that's exactly it. I love that show. To this day, I love that show. If I ever got to be on Broadway and they cast me in the producers, I think I might wanna play Roger Debris. I think I might wanna be the director. Not that I'm eager to wear a dress that makes me look like the Chrysler building, but I love that character. And I just think it's fun. And Holly asks, "Oh, which Terminate is the guy from District 9? None of them. But the way that this game is going, I, 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 wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be so surprised. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. You could have a Terminate that shows up and start saying, I have a dream speech, if they got the rights from the King family. This game is so wild, and I'm having such a good time playing it. Check out Helldivers. 
I think Helldivers 2, Helldivers 2, not the original, Helldivers 2. I appreciate you being with me today. Thank you for making time. Remember, starting tomorrow, I'll be streaming daytime and nighttime. Follow me on social. All the links are at nightlightjoshua.com. For more information, the daytime streams will end as of this Friday, and we will become an evening program starting next week. More details to come. In the meantime, I hope you have a great day. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. And until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you for making time for me. Go enjoy Helldivers or whatever diversions you like. And please keep on shining because someone, somewhere, needs your light right now. <laughs>